uncovering some of the most amazing stories from some of the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with Batman, Phil Jones. And uh, I'm even wearing my red jumper to be Robin today. And uh, we've got a great guest today. And I obviously want to find out about Phil's amazingly interesting life in lockdown. And I'm really hoping he's not going to bang on about Ocado again today. Is there anything else, Phil? Come on, how's your week been? Well, Ocado's uh, yesterday's people, I'm afraid. No, there's nothing about Ocado this week. Great. Um, it's all about Portugal. Because oh. I was on tender hooks to check the. Portugal was actually on the green list, which it was. So we booked a flight for this Monday. So Babs and I are flying out for three weeks over to the Algarve, which I, I can't wait. Lovely. The cost of getting there, though, is a bit deceptive because you book the flights and you think you're doing quite well. And then you need the PCR test. But you've got to have it 72 hours beforehand, which means and we're going on a Monday morning. So the only way you can do that is get a same-day test, 500 quid for the test, just for the two of us to get on the plane. Wow. Then you've got to fill in this government passenger location form going out, do the same thing coming back, uh, make sure you have another PCR test to come back. <laughs> it's like, so there's no quarantine, but it's, it's interesting just to get away to Portugal. But I'm really excited. So as of next week, I'll be saying bye-bye to you, Dan. Thank you very much. And leaving you in Kent, along with today's speaker, the two of you. Uh, and one other thing, big, big news, even bigger than Ricardo, is Babs made me an apple pie last night. <laughs> 20, we've been married 47 years this year, and it's 25 years since she actually made me a apple pie and during lockdown she's just gone bananas she's just doing all these things that she knows are on my hit list so i'm i'm very very happy with mrs jones what a, what a lady and the homemade apple pie was just gorgeous mate so, and the fact and the fact that you know it's been 25 years since she's made you an apple pie i don't know if it's a good thing or worrying it, it's quite worrying really but it's <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. when you try and find the restaurants where they've got apple pie on the main some of their lang langans i love langans right. because you know there's going to be something english yeah. On there, which you can have a little treat. But most places, they're a bit too fancy for me. I really do like an apple pie, ice cream, maybe even custard. There we go. <laughs> simple now, taste, simple taste. Well, now we've shown how common we are on uh, this part of Kent, I want to introduce today's guests. So today, Dan and I have settled down, sparkling wine in one hand, pint of bodies in the other, ready to have a chat with this week's guest, who has an incredible story to tell. Hailing from the Northeast, he's been achieved quite remarkable things in the world of alcoholic beverages. His first success came when he took a humble bitter from the Northwest and elevated it to new heights. He spent the last two decades successfully putting English wine on the map like no one has ever done before. We're delighted to welcome the chief exec of Chapel Down Wines and one of Kent's best exports after Dan himself. Fraser Thompson. Morning. How are you? Morning. Welcome, Fraser. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. All right, should be fun. It will be fun. And, 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 the, and the first question is always one of our deeper meaningfuls. If you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, Fraser, who would it be and why? Uh, why? You told me this one in advance, and, um, and I've been giving it much thought. Um, and uh, the truth is, if I picked somebody I really liked 
it would be awful. So I wanted to pick Bob Mortimer because I, I just think he's, uh, he's, he'd be a hoot. He'd be a really funny. Uh, I have a similar sense of humour. He's from the Northeast. And I really like him. He seems like a humble guy, sort of guy I'd really like to do that fishing thing with. Yes. But then I thought he seems like a very shy and humble man. And he would hate to be stuck in a lift with somebody like me asking him questions all the time. So I'm, I, I'm not quite sure I would choose Bob Mortimer because I'm not quite sure he'd enjoy it. Um, so I, I would choose Bob Mortimer. I tell you what I wouldn't want is somebody with a pair of bagpipes. And I only said that because we had a belated burn supper the other day and we had it with 30 people in a room and they'd hired the full thing, you know, and it was, um, and, uh, and, and this piper came in and it was absolutely deafening. And whilst I love a bagpipe on the top of, um, on the top of a stadium at Murrayfield or anything else, close to bagpipes, man, they are just something too, I Too love. much. Oh, <laughs> anyway, so Bob Mortimer. Right. Bob Mortimer, no bagpipes. I like it. Bob, Mort Bob Mortimer and uh, no awkwardness. Yeah. What is interesting, Dan, is we've, we've 21 of these podcasts alive. Not Nobody has chosen the same person to go in that lift. Very true. Quite interesting, actually. You'd have thought there might have been one or two crossovers. Bob Mortimer would definitely be up there with, with me as well. He seems like a lovely guy, doesn't he? He does. He does. And he likes fishing. So you started out your career in a world of beverages at an early age. Can you tell us a little bit about the Whitbread years and, of course, the Boddington's era and how it shaped you? Well, uh, I, I guess as a Geordie, I was almost certain to end up in beer in some way, shape or form. Um, or that was always my ambition, I guess. Um, my wife worked for Whitbread, and I didn't at the time. So uh, her first job after we got married was to work for Whitbread. And she used to come home very late. She'd had a ball at work, and I was just working like a dog in an audit company. And she seemed to be having all the fun. And uh, so I got to meet some people at Whitbread. And uh, a couple of years later, there was a job going, and I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it. And the interesting thing about Whitbread as a company, uh, I think, is that although it's got some fantastic brands and is actually famous for some of the brands that it did, so you think about Costa Coffee or Brewers Fair or Premier Inn, as they are now, in the old days, Heineken, Stella, Boddington's, when it was a brewer, and you automatically assume, therefore, that the, the kind of germ within, within Whitbread would be a, a marketing germ. Uh, germs the wrong word but uh, you know they're a marketing orientated company they are not or, or they weren't when I was there their primary thing was all about people they were brilliant at, uh, at training and bringing people into the organization so it was a really tough organization to be a part of you know they made you jump through hoops and interview processes and all the rest of it and it didn't really you know it wasn't one of those places that was Oxbridge only or anything like that it was trying to get the right people who would all get on together. And so there was this fantastic team spirit in Whitbread, which was, I, I, I've never, I'm trying to recreate that a little bit in Chapel Ends. One of the great learnings is, you know, people is the most important part of any part of the business. And, and Whitbread was the bit that really taught me that. And even today, even though, you know, I, I first joined Whitbread in 1984 or something, 1985, um, and even today, some 35 years later, I still have more friends in business from Whitbread than any other time in my career. And I still see them on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, it's like putting on an old, comfortable pair of shoes whenever we meet. It's, um, it, it's wonderful. 
So Whitbread was a fantastic company. And I started off on the pub side, actually. Um, so if you've ever been to a brewer's fair, I'm partly to blame for some of that. Uh, but eventually I wound my way into brands and, uh, and ended up at Chiswell Street. And I guess like most people, you wait for a lucky break. And uh, I, was, I was actually working on uh, Whitbread Trophy and Whitbread Best Bitter. Now, uh, you can probably sing the whole of, uh, if you're old enough, uh, certainly, Phil, you will remember, I'm sure, Whitbread Trophy adverts, Whitbread Trophy, bit, trophy Bitter, the pint that thinks it's a quart. Everybody can sing it, who's of a certain age. Um, but it wasn't selling particularly well. Uh, and then the government had this bright idea of bringing out something called the beer orders, which effectively gave um, all landlords the right to choose a cask ale. And um, we had trophy on cask, but it wasn't brilliant. So uh, we went looking for one and uh, and we found Boddington's. And um, so I was part of the team that acquired the Boddington's brand and then was given the, um, as it turned out, the fantastic task of of turning a regional brand, much loved by Manx, into something that uh, everybody in the country uh, could uh, love and appreciate. And so that was quite, that was a hell of a challenge actually, because it was, I'll give you one example. You know, I went up to Strangeways and um, the moment before you went to, uh, before Whitbread uh, owned uh, Boddington's, if you got a bad pint of bodies in Manchester, it was the landlord's fault because they, they could do no wrong. The moment Whitbread bought uh, Boddington's, any bad pint of Boddington's is down to those buggers in uh, at Chiswell Street, you know? It was down to Whitbread. So we had to be absolutely uh, fastidious about, uh, about product quality from day one, and we had to do something that really kind of invested in the business. So, um, so it was a people challenge as much as anything else, but of course the what you get remembered for is uh, is the fantastic marketing that we did. So yeah, that uh, that takes us to Boddington's, yeah. and uh, I can have a breath now. <laughs> well, yeah, you have a breath because I I grew up in North Manchester, and I hope I've not lost my accent. It's probably very, a bit more southern now than it ever was. But me and my dad would always go to the local working men's club. That's where my dad would drink. He wouldn't go to pubs, the local working men's pub. So, and the choices were bitter or mild. Or you can have a pint of mixed, you know, where you've yeah. got half mild, half a bit. And I, there was no lager. I don't ever remember lager being on the menu. And I'd never grown up having lager. I'd just grown up having bitter. And I came to London in 1973 and asked for a pint of bitter in whichever pub I was first in. I was probably somewhere near Clapham because that's where I, I was. No, no bitter. So it wasn't wasn't even there wasn't even a choice in that particular pub at that time. It was like they were all dodgy pubs. So I owe you a favour, mate. Because well, you know. I have to say, as a Geordie, um, I went down to London uh, when I uh, left school and went to university in London. And uh, the, the beer up there is called Scotch Scotch Ale. So we have a Newcastle exhibition and uh, McEwen's Best Scotch. So we'd call it a pint of Scotch. So you know, you get any pint of lager, and me going to a bar saying pint of Scotch, please. And getting some very odd looks. Uh, so yeah, um, it, but it's so it's such a changed uh, environment now. Brewing, it's um, it's incredible. But the Boddington story is it's, it's a great story. You know, it's um, it's trying to change consumer behaviour um, when some of those things are baked in. I remember going to a pub in um, in London uh, and uh, asking them about Boddington's and the beer with a head on it. And of course, the line in London is you know if you 
can you get a double scotch in the top of that pint? Well, fill it full of bloody beer then. And uh, and so, you know, it wasn't generally, uh, you, you didn't drink beer with a, with a, you asked them to draw a pint of beer and people would always draw a pint of beer with their head on it because it's, people drink with their eyes, but you get this stuff absolutely flat in London. And um, yeah, so getting them to change that whole thing was really difficult. So we had to introduce a beer engine that would do that. So when they poured it, it would just, you had to raise it a certain way with a, with a, with a head on it. But the biggest single innovation, of course, was um, uh, was putting a widget in the can. So we had the franchise for Murphy's in the UK from Heineken, and we developed this widget uh, to do with Murphy's. And uh, uh, and again, so one of the bright moments is saying, hang on, the opportunity with Murphy's is nowhere near as big as it is with Bitter. Um, so actually, why don't we put the widget in a can of Boddington's and really shake the market up? And again, the bravery of a company like Whitbread was to go with this, you know, 28-year-old kid's idea that that was a great idea. And they did. Uh, and, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you can research very easily. Uh, so you, you're convincing everybody in the, in the south of England, including your own sales force, and they were a tough lot to convince, that actually people in the south wanted to drink beer with a nice, fat, creamy head and, um, and it should come from north. <laughs> uh, and so we did, and and it worked. And um, so th this is where you've got to tell uh, the Boddington story, the advertising campaign that launched. It was just quite stunning, really, and very, very different. So, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about your involvement in that and how it developed? Yeah, well, I was the director of marketing for Rails at that point, and uh, so I had uh, all the other cask in the portfolio. But my big, the big. The big one was bodies, and I had a fantastic brand manager called Patrick Langan, who um, who was who was the mank heart and soul of it. So, if you weren't being mank enough in the whole kind of process, <laughs> he, he, he'd mank you up if you forgive me. No, phrase it. No, can't do that, mate. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so anyway, he was a, a great lad, and um, uh, we went, we went to Bartle Bogle and Hegarty. And uh, that, that was the agency we were going to use. And they were very cool, probably at that time, most famous for the Levi's jeans commercials. And, um, and we got the great Sir John Hegarty. Uh, and we wrote on the brief. So we, we, we write the brief for the agency, as, as you know. And at Whitbread, we did a lot of research and we're generally pretty smart uh, marketeers. So we'd write a pretty comprehensive brief. And it asked on the BBH brief, can you sum up the proposition as best you can? So we did, uh, and I put on the brief, uh, and Patrick and I put on the brief, uh, uh, Boddington's is the cream of Manchester, right? So we then put that into the BBH machinery, these geniuses, these fantastic creative geniuses, and they came up with the line, Boddington's, the cream of Manchester. Uh, so <laughs> having said that, of course, uh, that, that was quite a brave thing to put as an advertising message. But there were a couple of things they did which were just off-the-scale genius. Um, uh, the, the first was, uh, and I don't know if you remember the original campaign, was we had a limited budget and we were expecting a TV commercial. And they said, no, uh, what you need to do, Fraser, is you need to put this on the back pages of magazines. And I uh, was aghast. Uh, and the reason they said that is, uh, look, we can't afford a national poster campaign but effectively, getting on the back pages of magazines will act like a poster campaign. You'll, you'll, you'll not miss them. And that campaign became most famous, I think, uh, in the creative world because of those 
amazing black and yellow uh, ads on the back pages mm. of magazines with this beautiful creativity making uh, a whole feature of the creaminess of the head of Manchester uh, and super iconographizing that the whole thing so black and this kind of deep yellow color uh, and that was absolute genius uh, what they did and using the analogies of cream and everything else uh, and then of course we moved on to the tv campaigns which um uh, which again were all about cream to a degree um and uh, uh, but often set up uh, or, or started taking the mickey out of other advertising genres um uh, and the danger with doing that you know mickey out of advertising genres is it becomes a an advertising thing rather than a brand thing so the key to it was to keep banging this message out that it's creamy because uh, that was the one great product proposition that we didn't want to lose um and yeah it was um uh, it was it was a fantastic joyride you know every time we went to the agency we'd pick up more awards and uh, and they'd show us another amazing um uh, ad of one one thing or another and we we'd run it and the sales force would run around writing orders it was um it was glorious and then we had the innovation of the can which also made it work in take home so it wasn't just being in pubs it was arms reach of desire everywhere and suddenly the brand was everywhere amazing i feel like we could have a whole podcast episode just on that story just on bodies just on bodies i feel like we could stay there for another half an hour it was an extraordinary time actually i mean that was it it was also the 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 late 80s and early 90s so it was you know manchester stuff you know when it was uh the factory (laughs) and all that so so manchester was pretty cool uh i mean obviously it's ridiculous at the moment you know uh, but it's, um, it, it, you know, at the time, <laughs> that, right. that was the You're place right. to be. Yeah. Yeah. John Higgerty actually has is, um, is ended up like you with it, but he's on vineyard. He's got, um, yeah, he's got a vineyard down in the south of France, and uh, he's still a lovely guy. And yeah, the like best it. thing here, he, he's got some such style, you know, if he, he sends you personal notes, and so I've still got a few notes. If you've done something good, he'll, he'll just write you a little mm-hmm. note saying, well done, Sir John, you know. Uh, and he's, he's a lovely man. The best thing he ever said, though, and creatively, I've always remembered it. So, you know, for people in marketing agencies and stuff, it's so crucial. He once said, uh, uh, if you give me a car park to park in, I'll park all over the lines. Give me one space to park that car in and I'll park it perfectly. So they spent a lot of time thinking about the space that you wanted to plant your brand in. Uh, you know, they had a they had a team of people who all believed in what Sir John believed in, and so that kind of the BBNH of that were a, were a fantastic at forcing creativity into a, into a tight space. And, and when creatives are forced into a tighter space, they have to use their minds much more. And interesting, that's what you're paying them for. That, that was a great learning, really, from uh, from BBH. Brilliant, love that. Great team. Next chapter of your life, we took on a global role at Heineken. So yeah. with everything you learned at Whitbread, you know, and all of those amazing experiences, you kind of, you went to Heineken, didn't shy away from bold and brave campaigns there. And is it true that you were at the helm of building the brand in the US? So what are some of the, what some sort of stuck to, what are some of the memories and some of the learnings from that era? Uh, well, I wasn't really at the helm building, uh, the US was built by uh, Mr. Heineken himself, who in one of the great adverts of all time, when you could do comparative advertising, said, Cronenberg, 1664, uh, the reason uh, the the French drink wine. Uh, And it was just one of those great habits which you could run in America. Uh, So uh, Heineken Heineken was a real icon. And uh, so, no, all you could really do was screw up. Um, And I think uh, Heineken was was a a real business. So this was a career. Um, 
this wasn't a, a, a chance to kind of test your creative metal or anything. This is a this is a place to really kick on. You were given this amazing brand, and the whole place is like a green machine at Heineken. Everything's right. focused on this amazing uh, beer and uh, and system and process. Great sponsorships, great advertising. I, I did them, but you know, I, my memories of it were some of them for another podcast you know when when you first arrive you, you meet the doctor who's called dr reichbost which means rich chest and he gives you a drugs cabinet full of drugs and condoms because you're going to travel the world and, and you are going to travel the world Fraser, and you are going to convince people to drink heineken and sometimes you have to stay up very late arrive at crazy times these are what you will need and he gave me just a giant bag of drugs which included larium uh, sleeping tablets, all sorts of stuff, um, and you know you, uh, and of course you do. You, you uh, what my job was to go around the world and police the Heineken brand. So basically, go around and tell people what they were doing wrong. You do the research, you do the consultancy stuff, you uh, you do the analysis, and you do the numbers, and it's it's all rather dry. But ultimately, you're the man from Del Monte. You know, you're the man from Heineken, and uh, I, remember, I remember jumping a queue at Studio 54 in New York, and they put me ahead of Heidi Klum in the queue. Now, you know, you can see me. Uh, so <laughs> you can imagine how ridiculous a proposition that was, but because I was the man from Heineken. Wow. And the, you know, the, uh, and so Heineken was this, it's a great machine. It doesn't, you're not going to change it much. Um, you know, I could tell you stories about putting, putting glass pathways into Mr. Heineken's uh, Antibes uh, pool so that he could greet some Hollywood producers. Uh, when they arrived uh, by walking across the water. I mean, you know, things like that are true. And they're also, they're this kind of stuff of legend that you have to be Mr. Heineken to do them. And now there's no longer a Mr. Heineken. I, I, you know, I do, I do worry about some of the magic disappearing from, from brands like Heineken. But um, an extraordinary time. And so five years going around the world selling beer, it's a pretty good job for a Geordie, really. You know. <laughs> the only downside is that, because every aeroplane I was getting on, it's a turn left, and I was barely seeing my young family growing up. And uh, I think, as I've said before, you know, I was turning into the sort of person I'd punch. Um, you know, it's um, you know, as uh, you know, a, a guy who's pampered and uh, and given turn left access everywhere, and uh, is rather liking the smell of his own uh, stuff. So. Uh, you know, and that's not me. Uh, and so after a while, that becomes a little bit uncomfortable. And uh, it was brought home to me by, a, you know, a Frenchman who ripped his T-shirt open and he had tram tracks put up the front of his chest. And he said, this, Fraser, this is what you will be like in a few months' time. You must slow down. You must be yourself. You must be who you are. You are a nice guy. All this stuff. And it did. It worked, you know. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, I... Heineken's a great place and an unbelievable company with a sensational brand, but it's a career and that's, you know, you need to grind the, grind the gears on that. And uh, after a while, um, you have to feel uh, there's something else in life that you want to make your mark on. It used to just be another number churning the wheel at Heineken. And uh, I was never going to be a leader of it. So, um, right. hence English wine. Well, I was going to say, though, I mean, you say hence English wine, but on paper, you know, you, you know you've know, you obviously shared a little bit of insight there, but on paper, you, your next career move seems like you might have gone mad, you know, taking the yeah. pay cut, you know, become an MD of a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy, 
you know, were there a few people that thought you might maybe had too much Heineken? Yeah, it was a, it was a, <laughs> uh, on the face of it, it was a Brahma of a midlife crisis. I mean, right. absolute Brahma. Um, it, it wasn't actually quite like that. Uh, I remember the conversation with the wife quite vividly. Um, and uh, I said, well, look, um, there's this job. We were sitting in bed and saw this job for uh, English wines being advertised. And funny enough, a few weeks before I'd been to London, I'd had a drink with a, an ad agency friend and uh, and he bet me 20 quid. I couldn't tell where the wine was from. And I got a diploma in wine. And um, so I took the bet. I mean, you know, I know my stuff and got it wrong uh, and did it twice. So I lost 40 quid uh, and was introduced to, to what turned out to be Chapel Down. And it was right. literally a few weeks later. So it's serendipity, really. A few weeks later, this ad appeared and I, I, I turned to my wife and said, well, look, it's, it's an 80 percent pay cut. Um, but it's kind of really cool product. And I, you know, I think I'm a marketeer. That's what it needs. It's just marketing. Oh, how wrong I was about that. But uh, it was uh, it was fantastic to uh, to get my wife's reaction, which was, uh, look, I, I think you should go for it. You obviously feel passionate about it. I might start to see you a bit more and you might even start to bloody smile again. And she was right. So, um, yeah, we took we took the plunge and took the kids back to uh, the UK and uh, yeah, that's when the fun really started. When all that stuff they teach you at business school about, you know, the importance of cash flow, um, which is absolutely irrelevant in the world of beer. You know, that beer is uh, cash is flying in the door in the world of beer, or it was at that time. Uh, and you didn't even you had to wonder what you were going to spend it on. Um, and so, uh, so cash flow wasn't really an issue in wine. Of course, cash is absolutely king if you think about it. You know. Find a vineyard, buy it, plant it, cash, 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 cash. Wait three years and, and make sure it's looked after, more cash, more, no money coming in. Um, and then eventually you have a bottle to sell and uh, and it's English wine. And people go, English wine? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we have, so yeah, there's I dozens of stories about that, um, that, that first year or two, which was really... Uh, it re- I, I, I very nearly jacked it in a couple of times, but you know you've got to you've got to give it a go. So guys and in leather jackets kind of turning up to replace the photocopier and uh, replace or, not, or just not, not replace actually just take it away. <laughs> 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 Maybe men with leather jackets to uh, if they were replacing it, you were actually yeah. on the way up again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, and you think, well, what do I do? What, what? And so that's when you realise cash is king, and uh, yeah. and we needed more of it. So um, you know, for I mean, a while, it felt like a fundraising company with a wine business on the back of it. You know, I can imagine. But I mean, it's almost twenty years on. You know, you've kind of not just changed Chapel Down, but you know, the whole you know British wine industry. What? And, and this is a big question, so maybe just you know, chop it up into a couple of couple of key moments. But what were some of the pivotal moments on that journey? Because it's easy to look at the success now. And for people listening into the podcast, you know, I'm going to assume that most people, everyone's heard of it heard of Chapel Down, which is such an iconic brand in this country and, and, and obviously in many, many regions across the world. But what were some of those pivotal moments? How did you go from that bank, you know, almost bankrupt, as you said, to, you know, being a global leader? That's a huge journey. Uh, well, that's very very flattering. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, although we are definitely nipping at the, uh, the heels Absolutely. of champagne now. So um, if yep. we're a champagne brand, we'd be about seventh just behind Bollinger, actually. 
Um, so yeah, yes, yeah, it's nice to know, but we're we're nowhere in the same league yet. But uh, we're, we're getting there, which is which is nice of you to say so. I think there are kind of few uh, really uh, important moments. Uh, the the first was getting an investor in of the style that we got in from, uh, and it's unusual to talk about an investor. I, I think at this stage um, uh, of Ni- a guy called Nigel Ray, um, and he invested in two thousand and four. And every time we've asked for more money since then, he's always put his hand in his pocket and he's never taken a bean out wow. for 16 years. Wow. Uh, now, that's what I call patient capital. Uh, and, you know, he's been rewarded with a, a phenomenal return on his investment, uh, which he's keeping running. But he also, he's become uh, more, of a fr- more of a friend than an investor almost. And uh, uh, he's always there with great advice and, and having somebody... Uh, on your side, who's batting for you, who's uh, who believes in you and believes in the business, that's a great feeling. And so, number one was uh, was finding that investor at the right time. And you know, he's a sports nut like I am. Went to go and see him. Um, did the pitch. Was told by my chairman I'd completely flunked the pitch because we just talked about rugby and uh, stuff and wine. And uh, and then he rang me up the next morning, and said, "Right, you've got it. We've got the lot. So uh, only other directors can invest. Uh, here you go." Uh, and it transpired that because we had money, we, we actually ended up having a fire at the the winery, which which would have completely uh, yeah, would have t- taken the whole company down. But because we had um, uh, money in the bank, we were able to tough it out with the um, with the insurance companies to get uh, a good claim settlement, and that allowed us to. To kick on from there so there was a lot associated with that so not only his mentorship and everything else that went with it but but that kind of, and he was a famous investor so uh that also clicked a few other boxes so, so that was that was kind of one key moment that was early on that was 2004 uh, in 2007 we won a gold medal for the first time in our history and it was one of the first gold medals that was ever won by an english wine uh, and that made a few people stand up and take notice uh so up until then you can imagine going to you get people to try the wine and people go, well, that's nice. And then you go, oh, it's English. And then they go, ooh, it was, it was really odd. So there was no brands as such in English wine uh, and it was seen as being a bit odd. So having to tell the story each time about chalk and cool climate wines and, it, you know, it isn't, it isn't sunny all the time in New Zealand, by the way, and, and in Champagne is just over the way there. So it's, it's pretty much the same temperature. You've got to keep telling that story all the time. And eventually, drip feed that starts to work, and then I think the kind of, the, the big moment which most people will uh, will remember because it made the front pages of dozens of newspapers was, you know, Kate and William uh, allegedly uh, chose our wine for their royal wedding, which was uh, a brave thing to do um, when they could have had anything they wanted on the planet, really. Um, but it was a, a real statement of intent of uh, of what that what that what royalty was about, and uh, you know, we're eternally grateful for. Whether it's true or not, we, we're not even sure because it's supplied through a warrant holder. Um, but it was widely reported that, that our wine was sold. And of course, that made, frankly, if it's good enough for Kate and William, it's good enough for you, Cocker. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so the argument was slightly different after that point. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Amazing. And don't you also uh, supply number 10 down the street? Yeah, well, uh, yes, we do, and uh, quite a few others do now. And, and government has now bitten the bullet, and uh, you know they are they are being pretty supportive. And particularly, I have to say, that since the Cameron era, it's been they've been really very good in terms of uh, of help and support. Um, and I think the other then the other kind of 
final kind of critical bit was was the crowdfunding we did in 2014 and um and that was basically broadening the base of who owned the company and that's changed the way we work now um because we've now got shareholders who are customers who are fans who bore people to tears every day about how good chapel down is and saved me an awful lot of time effort and energy it's incredible. so it's in their own interest to do that and i think it's a very modern way of uh, of looking at shareholders and was it uh, one of the biggest uh, crowdfunding raises ever it was the fastest made? and biggest at the time yeah um uh and i think that's been superseded because i think brewdog have done something on right, a prospectus yeah, basis which uh, since is, is obviously much bigger but at the time it was a real breakthrough moment for that for that industry and i think yeah uh, so long as it's done well uh crowdfunding can be a real force for for, for good actually you know broadening ownership and, and we try and make sure that everybody uh, our employees are engaged and uh, they've got skin in the game and uh, so when i ask people to tighten their belts and stuff they understand why um <laughs> so yeah which is obviously brings us on to covid i guess yeah yeah uh, well actually no there's a little something that got pushed out of the way because of covid was brexit yeah. and yeah. How the hell did all of that affect the wine industry in the UK and and you guys in particular? Because oh. that was that was the only thing in the news up until that little germ. That's true. Uh, well, to be honest, um, <laughs> Brexit's pretty good news for if you're an English wine producer. You're kind of secretly hoping for these enormous queues and and they won't let foreign wine in and all this sort of stuff because we'll just clean up. Um, <laughs> and we're we're pretty small exporters. Uh, I mean, you know, there are forecasts to 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 suppose that you know we'll be quite big at exports and and certainly sparkling wine which you know half of champagne is sold outside of france so it's only half which is quite surprising and its biggest market in the world is the uk so i think it's pretty unlikely the french are going to buy our sparkling wine although you know we would buy there so why wouldn't they but they won't um so the second biggest market is the usa and then japan so it's you know there's from an eu perspective export wise it's largely irrelevant it's not irrelevant but it's it's, it's not hugely important and from a comp- competitive set brilliant you know it's uh, uh how, how could that go wrong for us uh, of course that's slightly different from a personal perspective about what brexit means um but from a chapel down business perspective um th- there wasn't any bad news about brexit well wow, brilliant the, the only downside of course is is things like the worries about potential labor shortages for seasonal agricultural workers and they've sold that one uh there's potentially issues about supply of bottles and corks and all those sorts of things but you know again they're not going to not supply bottles and corks because a lot of wine is bottled and corked over here it's been fairly straightforward uh, certainly compared to most other industries i think let's bring us on to covid because i mean obviously you know having to contend with a pandemic and many in luxury retail have suffered badly um you know, in, in traditional retail, should we say, and, you know, had ups and downs. But how would you sum up the past year for, for Chapel Down Wine? Um, well, I think uh, a bit like a statistician would say it was comfortable. You know, I had my head in the fridge for half of it and my feet in the oven for the, uh, you know. So uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, uh, really heartbreakingly, we, we had to dispose of uh, the Curious Brewing business, uh, which we built and our timing on that was simply appalling. Uh, we didn't know. Uh, we completed the, uh, you know, the, the brewing of that and started brewing in September 2019. You know, with this amazing facility we just built with this world class brewery. Uh, and sadly, you know, 90% of that of that business was the on trade, which then closed. And 
just the amount of uh, the amount of overhead that was there meant it's just going to be really difficult to to build that back up whilst we need all that money to continue to to fund a growing wine business so that was the kind of you know that's my head in the freezer bit that you know the feet in the in the oven part was the wine side which just it was a really challenging year last year but you know our wine sales overall were at 38 percent which is staggering uh, and our, uh, our champagne sales or sparkling wine sales at 50 percent whilst champagne's down 22 percent wow so it gives you an idea of how quickly we were able to pivot our business and and that was necessity you know it was uh, you know it was 18 hour days uh, pretty much every day for six to seven months uh, it's exhausting the team that we've managed to get are just the best people and the one thing we've been obsessed about uh, ever since I started is just only hiring great people. And we made one or two mistakes and only one or two. Uh, and we've got just this amazing team of people who, uh, when you really ask them to go to the wire, they'll go to the wire. And we were asking people to do that on a daily basis. So we pivoted the business. So from being, you know, 3% of our business, uh, 3 to 4% of our business, our e-commerce side is now 20% of our business. Uh, and that's at a time that's also growing at 38%. Uh, the supermarket listings, we had to really go for that. So we were knocking on the door of supermarkets the whole time to try and make sure that uh, we got more through. And the results been spectacular. And we've now got a, a change business that I think normally those sorts of processes would have taken us about three years to get through. And we had to do it in literally six months. Uh, that's when you really find out the team of people you're working with and how good they are. And it turns out they were as sensational as I thought they were. No, that's fantastic. And that's such a, you know, that's, you've, you pivoted so quickly and obviously moving much more D to C in terms of direct to consumer sales and the supermarkets. But how is that, that change in consumer behavior? Do you think that's a lasting change and has it impacted your kind of investment and growth plans in the coming years? Yeah, I, there are, and there are several things actually going on, I, I think, because uh, so, it's a great question. Everybody's asking it and nobody has the right answers to it. Um, th- there are several things that I know are true. The first is that English wine is definitely a thing. This isn't a fad. It's a, it's a proper thing. Yeah. People love it. And it's time is absolutely here. So it's more acidic. It's fresher. It's cleaner. It's bubbles. It's it's all the things that people want in one package. And it's sourced locally. And it's British at a time when that kind of, uh, that's become never more relevant. So number one is, you know, I think English wines are here to stay. So and that, it's kind of proven that. The, the, the kind of second part of it is is a bit more difficult so what's going to happen to the way we behave uh, are we going to continue to order bulky produce to our homes from um from supermarkets or or from online sales yeah i think we probably are are we going to continue to enjoy different experiences with friends at home yeah i think we are have we found new ways to entertain ourselves at home yeah we have so all of those things are definitely things that are going to change, that are, I think are more permanent behaviour. But at the same time, I see people rushing back to the pubs and restaurants because they really want to go. And, you know, Phil, you're dis- disappearing off to Portugal, you know, yeah. presumably because of sun, because, you know, you know, that's what we lack. And if it's all we lack is sunshine, uh, we've got everything, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah you're right. So I think uh, we will see, there are some slightly worrying signs in the on-trade, you know, the hospitality industry, because what we see are the pubs that are doing really well with great outdoor spaces and we're rushing to go and get them. What we're not seeing is those city centre pubs that are still closed and that still 
that their rent, uh, the government rent paying will stop in June. And I just wonder whether some of those places will open again because uh, they've got huge amounts of debt and, um, uh, and it's a real worry. So yes, I think we will see some fabric changes and, and therefore interesting planning in town centres, I think will be, will be the route forward. I think it's never been more exciting to be in business currently. Uh, it's also never been more exciting to be in English wines, but, you know, I'm knackered. <laughs> <laughs> Let's brand ambassadors. So you're a big fan of creating brand ambassadors, whether it's sommeliers, strangers in bars. Uh, opening <laughs> good about that. <laughs> strangers in bars, yeah. No, you wouldn't want to chat up someone like Dan in a bar, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and opening up your shareholdings, like you know, trying to get more more people. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how your your take on the ambassador's angle that you seem to have favoured. Yeah, I think, um, look, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool marketeer, you know, and um, uh, I'm a great believer that if you tell your message well, uh, people will love your product. And it, it is all about telling that story and telling it brilliantly well. Uh, and I think what's changed is the medium in which you do that now. And, uh, you know, one-to-one -one communication is now so much more critical than it's ever been before. So we do it on social media. Um, and obviously that as a channel is obviously hugely important. But the endorsement from doing that is, if I tell you Chapel Down is fantastic, well, you go, well of course you'd say that, wouldn't you? So you, you put an advert on that's super creative and all that sort of stuff, and we enjoy the advert, but does it really convince us it's great? We look for other sources to tell us whether that product's good. And so whether that's, um, journalists and influencers who have their role, or whether it's, look, I'm a mate of Dan's or I'm a mate of Phil's, um, and they say it's good. Well, I trust your judgment or possibly not yeah. on, on what that means. So that brand ambassadorial role uh, and, you know, getting, getting people, you know, there's a great book actually by Kevin Roberts called Brand Love. It's a bit old now. Yeah, yeah. But in truth, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good insight in that. What you really want to do is you want, you've got to get people to fall in love with your brand. You really want to make them fall in love with them. And so to do that, you've got to have a, a really personal dialogue with them. And you can't do It's very difficult to do that as a brand. So what you have to have is a set of values that are so, um, that are so positive that you have brand ambassadors who have a, a, a number of vested interests in trying to, trying to convince you to fall in love with what, what, what I've fallen in love with, what they've fallen in love with. And, and that becomes a natural process. If you if you have a product that they they love and enjoy and they feel engaged with, somehow they they have skin in the game, uh, or they whether that's physically as a shareholder or emotionally because uh, they had it at the wedding or whatever it is, they become ambassadorial. Uh, and what we try and do is try and encourage them to be more brand ambassadorial. So go out, bore people to tears about how good your brand is and, and how exciting and how, uh, and tell the stories uh, as much as you can. And, and it is a, you know, so we look at it on social media very often, but very often it, it, you don't see it because it's it's person to person and somebody will order a bottle or see it on the menu. Oh, chapel down on the menu, all right, I'll get out. And then they'll tell you about when they went to Tenterden or, uh, yeah. or that was the one that was sold at the Royal Wedding. Or did you know about the chalk cliffs of Dover, by the way? It's the same as they've got in Champagne. And all these little memes that you've sown over the years, they all come flooding back and it's it's there encapsulated in this in this this nice little brand. But Fraser, you've also sort of 
directly and indirectly taking it a step further, if, I, if I'm correct. Called, you know, you're an ambassador for Kent and you played the very sort of active and collaborative role in sort of driving tourism in the whole area. So it's not just been about the Chapel Down brand, it's been about the Kent brand and the UK brand. And, and I think that that's, you know, am I correct? Has that played a, an important role in that ambassadorial sense? And obviously with the vineyard itself, you know, attracting so many visitors pre-pandemic. How, how's that kind of played out? Yeah, that, well, uh, well, number one is, you know, I did this, um, I was chairman of the IOD in Kent for a, for a period, right. which, was, which was great to try and um, uh, meet and influence people and, and talk to them when the brand was pretty embryonic. Um, but I fell in love with the county, actually. And it's a county that um, uh, people know it because of the, the Garden of England. Uh, and I'm a Geordie and we've got a Manc here and people are familiar with, you know, that they've got identities and it's, they're, they're pretty cool identities. And then you think, well, what about Surrey? What about Sussex? What about Wiltshire? What about Hampshire? What about these amazing places? But there's, there's no sense of anything about it. Right. Uh, and yet they're winning. And Kent, uh, I, I thought was, uh, w- w- you know, there, there's a role for Kent. And they've got this amazing set of, uh, albeit we're all getting on a bit, we're trying to get younger versions of ourselves in it. Uh, who go around and we um, uh, we try and sell the uh, sell the county uh, and understand the county and how it works, because actually as a business that's based in Kent, I want people in Kent to feel proud about it because I want people in Kent to go away and bore people to tears about how good Chapel Down is. So uh, you know there, there is a vested interest in saying, well, look, there's a bit of Kent in every bit of that product. So when you go back to university or when you go and travel, take up something Kentish with you. It's a uh, it's a lovely thing, you know. A Frenchman would do exactly that, you know. Yeah. What, what what Frenchman from Burgundy would uh, would not turn up with a with a with a bottle of Burgundy? Of course they would. It's it, it's it's part of what I am, uh, and so that's that that's really what we want to try and get. That's why I got involved and why I'd continue okay. to get involved in this uh, amazingly beautiful county with uh, such a rich uh, history, heritage, and uh, such a huge potential for the future. Yeah, brilliant. Love that. Yeah, so the IOD, I didn't realise that you were chairman of the IOD in that region. Well, my former boss at Whitbread Beer Company was a guy called Miles Templeman, who was the director general of the IOD for a while. So, um, uh, and he was also um, uh, um, non-exec chairman of Shepherd Neen, who, of course, are the Kent Brewers. Um, So uh, I was sort of introduced to it um, by Miles, and uh, and then was uh, met the guys at the IOD and they asked me to, to chair it for a... It's where I host events every year. I did three big Palmel. events at the IOD in Palmel. Yeah. And up until fairly recently, the sommelier there was French. Yeah. And uh, he's moved to another Palmel venue. Once with John Hegarty at that same lunch, I used his wine on every table. And that was at the Arts Club. And it actually went down really well because there was a personal touch. So maybe we should chat with the IOD about doing something with English wine at one of the... Yeah, let's do a bit of sabrage. Let's, let, let's go one up on John Haggerty. Big Hegsey may be a, a charming uh, millionaire <laughs> genius, but, you know, we can do better than that. I can flash a sword around and oh, we'll, we'll love a few bottles off with a sword, eh? Yeah. I'll get them going. Do you know what? Actually, I, I, it was very, very funny because the year we did that, uh, about two months before our lunch, it was at the Arts Club. But about two months before, he was made a sir. All right. So I got the team at the Arts Club to put me out a little red carpet. That was it was only about five yards long, 
but I put it up to his chair. So he had to walk on this little red carpet just to sit down to... Oh, like, yeah. you know, He found Very quite, quite hilarious. So moving yeah. on. Uh, we're covering nice, nice subjects here, aren't we? So climate change. Yeah. You know, let's let's talk about the weather. Yeah, it's uh well, it's uh, <laughs> apparently it's getting warmer, but it doesn't feel like that at the moment. Um so yeah, there were a number of reasons why you might have got into English wine back in 2001 as I did. Uh, and uh, where climate change is was one of those things it was already being talked about. And so to put it into context, if you have um a degree of global warming uh, that moves what's called the growing envelope. So if you can imagine something that's something like 270 miles further south than you, moves 270 kilometres rather, it moves uh, north by about 270 uh, kilometres. And that's roughly what we've had since the 70s, um, uh, or we had in 2001 until the 70s. So that puts the chalk terroir of Champagne in the middle of Kent. Um, so that was the global warming. Uh, impact so you know when when you're thinking about making this dopey move you know from Heineken to uh, English wines you do do a bit of research and and that was that was one of the more compelling bits that and the uh, and the soil types uh, which is it's the identical um, it's identical chalk and and our slopes face south rather than east west as they do in uh, in Champagne so climate change um, if it continues to move the pace it's moving then in 50 60 years time uh, the Chardonnay we're growing currently, which is already winning platinum awards, will will move more into Burgundian style. It's um, wow. Uh, so we're already making Chablis style um, uh, Chardonnay, and anybody who's tried the Kitscoty stuff or has seen the Kitscoty, uh, that's a platinum award winning uh, still wine from England. And if somebody had told me um, twenty years ago that you'd be winning a platinum medal from Decanter for a still Chardonnay, I'd have laughed in your face. Um, but that's exactly what happened last year. And um, uh, the, the, the quality of what's being produced at some of these vineyards now, we've learned a bit about the clones and climate um, is staggering. And we've had four great years of weather, to be honest. So um, we're probably owed a bad one. Right. It looks like this year. <laughs> uh, Feels like it. So Fraser, whilst we're, whilst we're throwing all sorts of big topics at you, let's sort of talk a little bit about technology and innovation, because that's kind of, you know, A, it's my world, but B, you've already kind of mentioned things like the widget in terms of you know, the humble widget in, from, from, from back in your, your yesteryear. But then you moved to, you know, sort of Heineken and had lots of whole army of people working on innovation. But what do you kind of, you know, what, I suppose you've covered some of those key moments. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about the future. You know, what sort of future opportunities excite you most in the area of technology or innovation, whether that's in the industry, in your industry, or just wider in general? Drinks industry is fairly traditional, actually, mm. and it's starting to just gear up. They get terribly excited about, you know, hard seltzers and things like that at the moment, or canning wine. And you think, bloody hell, you know, this is, uh, it's hardly cutting edge stuff, is it? Um, what is interesting is seeing how, um, because the, the bottle is the normal means of transportation of, uh, of a bottle of, uh, of wine. And as more and more of us start to think about <clears throat> sustainability, I think there'll be some really interesting uh, right. packaging innovation. So we're already looking at, you know, cardboard bottling and all that sort of stuff. So providing it, you know, it doesn't get in the way of uh, a fabulous product, because um, wine at the end of the day is, it's a non-essential good. So um, uh, then uh, I think you'll see some quite interesting stuff happening on packaging. I think the more interesting bit, as you've alluded to, Dan, is is more about how we talk and how we reach consumers. 
and you know, I start with the the central premise: is, doesn't everybody want to own a vineyard? Well, you do, don't you? Everybody wants to own a vineyard. So how? So number one is you can physically make that happen by saying, well, you've got a share in the vineyard. But how do I feel like I'm part of that vineyard? And and I think uh, engaging content that that takes you on that journey is something we've just started to work on and giving people the feeling that they're getting something that other people can't get is also a, a kind of crucial part of that journey so uh, of course you're going to go to uh, tesco's or sainsbury's or marks and spencer's or waitrose or all these other places that stock chapel down and you're going to see on the shelves of brute non-vintage fabulous products flint dry bacchus english rose the big core brands that we make uh, that have made us uh, a lot of money and uh, and uh, and make us um, well known. Uh, but if you're a shareholder and you, you want to come on that journey, you want something a bit more special. So making the wine is easy enough, but making people feel really, uh, really special about what they're consuming and giving them more information about that than they've had about anything else and making them really feel part of that journey is so critical. So we, in old currency, you know, we've done, uh, we did things like a vine lease scheme where we encourage people to come down and sing to their vines and all this sort of stuff and they help with the harvest. And uh, But it's all very hands-on, but a lot of that can be digitized. So, you know, you can, you can sit, you don't want to sit in a field for eight hours and pick grapes. Some people do, uh, and that's great. A lot of people just want to know, well, what's grape picking look like? You know what the kind of blip culture is like. So, oh, see how you do that. Well, now what happens? Well, that's my bunch of grapes that's gone into the into the press, and now what happens? Now, now what does it taste like now? And we'll send you some. So we'll send you a little tasting. So all of that we can see happening, so that you can feel, you actually can feel part of the, the final product. So, you know that that humble bottle of wine is now something you can really understand and uh, and that you can really feel like you can share with somebody because it's no longer just a product. It's it's a story. It's got yeah. some emotional bonding that's going on uh, and I think that's the really that's the really exciting bit at the end of the day we are still selling wine but we can sell the whole experience and we can sell that whole um that feeling of uh, of being part of that journey um and I think that's the where the there's blurry lines between hospitality and uh, and experiences and and a bottle of wine and that's that's the territory that's really exciting I think um, and where smaller companies like ourselves, uh, you know, can really start to innovate against the, you know, the big giants of champagne, uh, who I think are slow and lumbering and uh, potentially, um, uh, you know, uh, they represent something that that people despise and also don't aspire to anymore. You know, these kind of, um, you know, I saw a picture of, um, of one of the brands uh, and it was a picture of, um, uh, what's their famous tenant? Roger Federer in a bath, in a dinner suit, holding a bottle of, uh, of fizz uh, at, with a champagne flute. And I thought, well, I'm not quite sure if anybody actually thinks, uh, you know, what's that mean? What, what's that all about? Do you think Roger Federer actually drinks? Of course he doesn't drink. He's a world-class athlete. Would he be in a dinner suit? And Now, maybe my creative brain isn't as smart as, as yours, Dan, but I just thought... That's actually potentially damaging. It's, it's not doing any good. Yeah, but uh, your French accent was as good. Uh, merci. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's bluff. I do lots of great accents. I can't yeah, do any well, of them. We've had two of them today. Was the other one Japanese or? Dutch. 
Oh, that was yeah, it was not that good then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Give us another one. Japanese. I've done, I've done a bit of mank. I did a bit of swagger for you. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We've had all sorts. We've had Geordie. all sorts. Yeah. Geordie. You're getting a lot of value for money here, you know. You're getting a lot of value. No, he's going to start charging yeah. time and a half soon. That would be zero then, because one and a half times zero is zero, isn't it? <laughs> uh, during this last year, where it's the, the pace has changed for everyone, what, what have you missed the most and what have you enjoyed the most? Uh, well, I've, I, like everybody, I've, I've missed contact with people. I'm, I'm You know, I'm a hugger and uh, I think, you know, proper engagement with human beings is it's unnatural doing this to be honest um so I, i've missed that and i've got a son who lives in new zealand who i haven't seen there for nearly three years so uh you know that's everybody's got stories like that and you know i lost my mother this year and uh, you know seeing her decline in a nursing home and not be, so there's you know, there's stories like everybody else has got and yeah. i guess we miss uh what we might call normality and uh, so, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a very social animal. So, um, yeah, it, that, that's a big part has clipped. And, you know, learning to work from home has been... Uh, Interesting. Yeah, actually, but you're going to get to a certain age in life and it's quite nice to come down and, you know, work in your underpants and, uh, <laughs> and you know, you can't see and uh, a perfectly comfortable chair here and... Yeah, he, he uh, says just good. as we can see the top half of you. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that Dan, Dan has definitely got pajama bottoms on today. I can tell. Just I'm in my that. boardroom. Hey, yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the centre of Maidstone. I mean, I've seen worse than the centre of Maidstone, but I'm in my boardroom. What does it say on your wall, Dan? By the way, I'll show you what it says on my wall. It I says. And uh, mine's mine's a kind of a vacuous motivational quote. Don't listen to the dream stealers. Oh, I like that. It's, yeah, that's something we uh, we try and live by as entrepreneurs, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I've got um, I've got a poster from um, from the year I was born uh, of, a, of a movie, Peter Sellers' movie, called "The Mouse That Roared." Right, which seemed entirely appropriate. It was bought for me by a friend on my birthday, a significant birthday, and um, uh, it's actually Nigel Ray who bought it me. So it's an original yeah, movie poster of "The Mouse That Roared," which is. Um, Tiny little English wine company now nipping at the heels of Bollinger. Yeah, fantastic, Brilliant. love it, love it. Well, this has been amazing. Before Dan comes in with the final question, um, can you are you allowed to tell us anything about the financials at the moment? How's the business bearing? Is it things looking um, good? Well, uh, it's uh, this year will be an interesting year because, of course, we've had to live with the disposal of Curious Drinks, which obviously there's a fairly significant write down in the loss of that. But if you strip that out uh, and you look at the core wine businesses, which is Basically, what we're left with, uh, yes, we're showing some uh, some really excellent growth. So revenues up thirty two percent, EBITDA's uh, over doubled. Um, so yeah, it's been in that in that sense, it's been a good year. But it's been a difficult and heartbreaking year to to, to lose the brewery and having to take a write off on that. Um, but we're now in a fantastic place, you know. And the mission of the company is never been clearer. You know, we want to change the way people think about English wine forever. Uh, and that means investing in the brand and uh, the people and uh, planting more vineyards and building a bigger winery and the usual stuff that goes with that, which is, I think, great news for Kent and great news for jobs and um, and hopefully be good news for all um, uh, all the investors of, uh, of Chapeldown so they can bore people to us about their financial returns. So, you know, they've been getting a sort of 17% return every year for the last, um, that's financial return for the last 10 years or so or eight years since the last crowdfunding and um 
uh, and of course enjoying 33% off their wine. So I think they get a pretty good deal. So uh, I'm pretty happy with that. Brilliant, brilliant. brilliant. Well done, Daniel. There's a great investment, one liner for an investment pitch right there. I love it. Brilliant. Yeah, well, don't get me in the lift with you. <laughs> That's what they call the elevator pitch, isn't it? Yeah, God, yeah, I'd never exactly. stop. I promise you I'll buy a bottle. Just shut up. <laughs> I'll buy two. <laughs> right, well, final question, Fraser, because otherwise we could talk all day. And as I yeah. said, you're on time and a half now. As an agency, we're all about sort of making complex things wonderfully simple. What's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? Well, uh, I think it's going to be the same thing that, that most people are, are going to say, which is call centres. Um, <laughs> and, and for me, you know, ultimately, a lot of stuff can be done online or less. But of course, a lot of the time, it's sometimes it, you just want to talk to a human being. Yeah. And that, that's the one bit that is absolutely knackered. It's broken and nobody's doing it well. Uh, the only people who are, by the way, are in our, the only people I've come across who do it brilliantly are in our trade. Uh, and although I'm not a big fan of their wines, naked wine, um, if you ring the customer service department, world class, absolutely off the scale, world class, and nobody's doing it. Uh, and so uh, we talked before about the need for human interaction, uh, and you know we're trying to avoid it with all the apps and all the rest of us. And sometimes those things break down, and then you're left with the call center experience, which is just hideous. Uh, every time, every time, hideous. You never get through. And then when you do, they can't answer your problem because they're not being given the authority to deal with what you want. Um, and then, uh, and then, you, then you ring up Naked Wine, and that at least tells you that it can be done and it should be done. And actually, those people seem to be enjoying their jobs because they're probably paid a decent sum of money, uh, and they're probably trained to do that. So, yeah, please, um, yeah. Change it, change it, change it, change it. That, that's an appropriate end to our time together, Fraser. Nice one. Fraser, that's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, well, it's good to see you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at bewonderful.co.uk.